Hey, recording live the newest episode of Marta the Minimalist podcast, exclusively for you, the members of The Minimalist Method for Prosperous Female Entrepreneurs. I love helping other people to not have to go through some of the tests and trials that I did if possible. This is where you get the first dibs of the best business strategies ever so you can grow your revenue while minimalizing your time, your efforts, and your energy. There's great coaches. There's people in this field. So yeah, you want them on your team. And we are live recording the newest episode of our podcast, which big news, this will be the first episode of our rebranded title that went from the minimalist, uh, um, Marta the Minimalist, and is now going to be called Mindset Moves. And we're super excited about that at Media, the Creative Agency. And our very first guest of our revitalized brand is Sharon North Pole, who is, um, one of our beautiful clients that we love to work with. And I read all of my clients' books and I we're, we've been working on promoting and launching her first book, which is an anthology of beautiful stories. And of course I read it. And I, even though I had Sharon on the podcast recently, I said to Sharon, you have to get back on the podcast. Now that I read your story, uh, because we collect so many things from our clients and I have a beautiful team who's in charge of going through it all so I can stay in the strategizing energy. And, and sometimes it um, it takes me a little while to get through everything myself. But I'm like, now that I know your story, I need to have you on the podcast because those of you who follow me and who listen to my show know that I have a passion for women having babies and busting the myth that having a baby is... Um, is like the end of your life that if, and one of the main arguments that I hear often is that, well, if a woman is raped, you know, naturally she'd want to get rid of the baby. You know, she wouldn't want to go through that. And while that's probably, that's true. And Sharon can speak to that and you'll hear her story. That's a very traumatic thing to go through. I've heard of multiple women having babies after such a traumatizing event and have a beautiful relationship in the future with their, with their children. So when I read Sharon's story, I said, I have to have you on the show because I love to share the message that when people think of a baby, sometimes I think of it, obviously I have six and I think having a baby is a beautiful thing. So obviously I love to have babies, right? I have six of them. I love being pregnant. All, all that stuff. But then there's that, I think that there's this societal myth that when you have a baby, your life is over as a woman and your body is ruined and nobody's going to want you and you're done living. But, um, and Sharon can attest to this, my experience and my belief is that when you have a baby, it's like, it's not just that first year that they're, let's say, quote unquote, not sleeping or nonstop nursing and eating. And, you know, you feel, feel like, you know, that's definitely an exhausting experience, but there's so many more years beyond that. And it's also a beautiful experience. Let me say that again, you know, that I love having babies, but there's so many more years beyond that, um, that people don't think about. And, um, and I often talk about how myself and my four siblings as adults, 
my mother was told to abort some of us and um, she didn't. And we're the ones as adults who took care of her in her dying days. And we're the ones now taking care of my father who is Alzheimer's. And so people often don't think past that pregnancy and the baby and, and the beautiful life that you can have with your children well beyond those years, as, as much as, again, I think I disagree. I think pregnancy and having babies is wonderful. So you've now heard my spiel and you will understand why I had to have Sharon back on the show. You're going to cry. You're going to have chills. And might I mention that when she shares the story in her book, it is so educational in the culture that was happening in the world and the way she writes and eloquently streams words together is beautiful. Um, so we'll tell you, uh, we'll tell you in a little while how you can find out how to fully read her story, but take it away, Sharon. Thank you. Well, my experience with having a baby wasn't the experience that, of course, you've had because mine took a different path, um, right or wrong. Um, it just went a different way. And like a, a lot of things in life, if we could change things, we would, but I don't get a chance to revisit the past. So what happened to me is I met a, a young preppy guy in my psychology class in college, my first year of college. He was cute. He was fun. He had been the mascot of his high school and he was a very preppy, clean cut guy. In comes the 60s with a roar. And this is in 1966, 67. And it's when the Beatles and the Rolling Stones hit, hit the planet. It's when um, when Woodstock happens, it's when the whole world shifts. And when I started college, girls couldn't wear pants. Within a year, we revolted and we could wear pants. So it was a different time. He ended up turning from that clean cut preppy into quite a hippie. And from there into a drug dealer and a drug user. And so although we had a great beginning of our relationship, as he twisted into that new new found 60s revolution, he wasn't for me. So I broke up with him and he then got farther and farther into drugs, more and more delusional, and I distanced myself from him. And so as he continued to follow down that path, he became somewhat psychotic. And one day he broke into my parents' house when they were gone and he raped me at knife point. And we had been separated now as a relationship for six months, but he believed in his twisted drug phased mind that if he, if he could be physically close to me again, that we could be together again, which wasn't the truth. So that episode was traumatic and it, excessive use of force. And it was really scary. And I ended up getting pregnant. So I thought about having an abortion. At that point, getting an abortion was very difficult. You would have had to go to Mexico or to Japan or to someplace else because abortion wasn't legal in the United States. So I grappled with myself and my beliefs and decided to go ahead and and have the baby. But I was terrified of him and afraid that whatever would happen in my life, he would be following me and tormenting me and tormenting my child and scaring me and um, perhaps hurting us both. So I didn't feel that I had the choice really to keep my baby. And it was a different time, a time when being a single unwed mother was really um, 
It was stigmatizing. It was not approved so much so that my parents, when they found out I was pregnant, kicked me out of the house. So I spent the my pregnancy with friends and with my sister, who has been my rock, the person that's been there for me my whole life. So I ended up going to term with that baby, a short term. She was born premature. I was at my sister's house, so I had some love, but I've never been more depressed and more down and more more just discouraged than I was at that time in my life. My parents had, had left me. Um, my boyfriend had turned insane into this crazy person. His family was pretty much, you know, not there. So other than my sister, I was pretty alone and I was at a, at, the lowest point in my life. And I wanted to be independent and not depend on my sister financially to have that baby. So I opted to connect an adoption agency by myself. And then there was a lot of pressure from the adoption agency once I made the decision that I was going to have the baby and send her for adoption. Then they of course, want the baby. So at that point, there's a lot of pressure that, you know, you can't keep her, you can't take care of her. You're a single mom, you don't have a job, you don't have support, you don't have a husband, you don't, you don't, you don't, you don't, and you can't, you can't, you can't. So once I made the decision with the adoption agency, there was a lot of pressure from them to continue to term, to let them have the baby and and set her up for adoption. So I ended up having my baby in a in a county hospital in a ward with um people that I had never spent my life with they were drug addicts and prostitutes and um and people with mental conditions in a large ward of women there were 30 women in my hospital room that were all people that were from a different strata stratosphere of life than I had lived in I had grown up in a in a very middle-class, you know, environment. So I was not only out of my element, I was scared of the other women that were in my, in my hospital room. So it, all in all, it was a very traumatic experience. I ended up having my daughter at six months. So she was significantly small and uh, immature and ended up in an incubator. And the adoption agency had a belief that I couldn't see her or hold her that that might make me change my mind, which it might have. So I would go to the nursery and look at all the newborn babies and I could kind of identify her because there were only a couple of incubator babies. But I knew that I'd made a decision and what I thought was best for her. I feel felt that she would have a chance at a at a normal family life with a mom and a dad and a family and not have the struggle and the and the disassociation that she would have with me as an unwed mother trying to survive. So I made the decision. And when I walked out of that hospital, I realized that I had done the hardest thing that I will ever do. So I came out of there realizing that I had given away the bone of my bone and the blood of my blood and my own daughter. And I felt guilty for that basically the rest of my life. So that was a, a shame that I carried, a secret that I carried, and um, just a, a weight, a heavy hearted weight. So from that point on, 
when I would go out in the world and I would see small children, I would always wonder, could that be her? Is that my baby? Is that my daughter? Does she look like me? Is that her? And that went on for years. As I knew she was growing, I would start looking at children that were about her age or, or the age that I knew she would be. So I did that for 26 years. And I did contact the adoption agency to try to get in touch with her when she turned 16. I sent a medical information letter about me and my family and an offer to help her with college. Well, her adopted parents threw that letter away. So she never received it. And she was going through a hard time as she was growing up and never felt really connected to her adopted family. They were from Oklahoma. They were very different than me in, in, a, in a California, you know, California DNA. We've been in California now for, you know, four generations. So there is a difference. There's a difference when someone's adopted that they just don't necessarily fit in with the people that they have landed with. So she didn't ever feel that she fit in. So she started looking for me uh, when she was in her 20s and she was having a hard time. She'd gone through college. She had gotten out of college. She was working in a trauma center and she was connected to some pretty low life relationships. She was um, dating people that were really not um, not clean cut, not good influences. And she realized that. And she felt like if I could just find my birth mother, I'd be, I'd feel okay. I'd be okay if I could just find my birth mother. So she started on a path to find me. I had been in touch with the adoption agency, but I had lost touch with them because I was impacted by the, um, by the earthquake of 1989 in Santa Cruz, and I lost a lot of my house. So I became focused on rebuilding my house, and I hadn't been in touch with the adoption agency for about a year. And when I finally got dug out of the rubble of the, of the earthquake, I did contact them, and, I and they let me know that she'd been looking for me for the last six months. So I, I called and left a message on her phone. And when she called back, she talked to my mother and my mother was at that point in her eighties and <laughs> Ellie is my daughter. Her name is Eliana. And she, she's my mom who was in her eighties said to her, we've been looking for you. We've been looking for you for years where are you and how are you? So my daughter made the decision at that point to shut down her life, which was in Chicago. And within the next 30 days, she moved to California and started living with me. And we started a journey that I have to tell you was the next hardest thing that I've ever gone through, which is trying to find connection to this lovely woman that we had a lot in common with. You know, we we ha we have a similar shaped face. We had the same dress on. We were just alike in many, many ways, but she was mad and she was hurt and she was abandoned and she was left. And she lived with that, um, that disconnect with me for years. And I stayed with, for the first year, we were just inseparable. I was with her all the time. She came pretty broken, pretty, um, uh, 
I, I guess she was just reconnecting with her mom in a way that she almost became a, a, a small child again. So I, I quit my job. I dedicated my time to be with her and see if I could help her find the path to be okay. She ended up meeting a great guy and he and I together worked with her to help her heal and grow. And she ended up getting married and I stayed in, in really close contact with her all those years. And she ended up having three children and I have three grandchildren and they were all home births. And I was there for her during those births. So I've been with her now since she was in her 20s. She's in her 50s. So the other day she said to me, you know, I've been with you now longer than I was without you. So we've crossed this, this dateline, if you will, of, of connection. But it was really hard to stay connected. And the interesting thing was she was somewhat jealous of my relationship with her children because I was there to help raise them. They grew up learning to ride horses at my ranch. They learned how to, I taught them how to ski. I taught them how to hike. I taught them how to do a lot of things. I'm an outdoor person. I'm an athletic person and I love the outdoors. And so I taught them that. And she was somewhat resentful, even though she couldn't admit it or find it or, or didn't even know it. But she was mad at me because I wasn't there for her. I wasn't there to do those things with her. So we went through this connection, disconnection for over 20 years. And I just hung in there loving her the best I could, even though she really wouldn't connect to me. Um, it was a, a distant love on her side. And I learned, you know, patience. I, I think of the black bamboo, which is a plant that, you plant the seed and it doesn't do anything. And you water the thing for five years. You keep watering the black bamboo. And on the fifth year, it sprouts and it grows four feet. And that's what I kept thinking of. You know, I'll just love her and water her. And one day she'll be able to really connect with me and love me. And that finally happened just a couple of years ago. And I think it happened when I sold a property and I was, I was distant and I made her the executor of everything. And she said to me, this is the first time anybody knows that I'm really yours. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was a profound uh, awareness for her and for me that part of how she's felt all this time was I wasn't really, she was she wasn't really my daughter. She, I, she wasn't really mine. I'm not on her, you know, I'm not on her birth certificate in, her, in the one that she got. I'm on her original, but not on the one that they, they gave her. So it was this, I don't really belong still. And when that sale of the property happened and she executed all of it and signed all the documents, she said, you know, I really feel like now that I'm in charge of this and I'm, I'm the executor of all this and I've got the legal capacity to make decisions for you, I really recognize that I'm yours. And then we started to be able to connect in a, in a deeper way, in a, in a way that was um, really loving, like a daughter. And um, for the longest time, she just called me my name. She never really called me mom. She, they have a name for me. Um, it, it's called More. So the kids call me More. And she would call me that. But she never really called me mom. And I think the other thing that helped transition our relationship was her adopted mother got Alzheimer's and died. So she was finally free of the guilt of 
um, being really connected to me when she still had alliances to her adopted mom. So those were changes that happened in in our life. And then the last part of our really deep connection happened when I got really sick. So I got a rare form of pneumonia in um, in the summer, last summer. And I was in California with her actually for a graduation of one of my grandkids. And I didn't ever make it to the graduation. I went to the hospital instead. And I was in a coma for two weeks on life support. And she thought I was going to die. And so did everybody else. And I came out of that partly because of the lifestyle that I had lived going in, you know, part of what I help other women learn to do to take care of themselves. And I was in the hospital for two months. And during that time, both she and my domestic partner, Lawson, were there every single day. And during that time, she really came to the realization that I'm not going to be here forever. And that having a really strong, loving mother is really important. And she has it. And she connected with a lot of other adoptees and they all carry a wound. They carry what they call the primal wound, the wound of separation from their their real mother, from their birth mother. And she recognized that and connected with a lot of other adoptees whose stories are nothing like ours. They went to see their birth mother. Their birth mother didn't want them. It's still a secret. Nobody knows. Their birth mother had died. Um, Their birth mother didn't even know who the birth father was. So she realized at that point that she had a tremendous connection and a loving mother that had been there for her for 20 years, waiting in the sidelines for her to connect. And connecting with other adoptees, she realized how valuable her story was, how, how special it was, how much I'd been there for her, where a lot of birth mothers can't, won't, don't want to, whatever, whatever might be their, their story. So that those, those changes connection with connected with other adoptees that didn't have a good story. The fact that she was able to manage some, some um, financial things for me and felt connected. And then the final thing was when I got so sick. So our, our roles were sort of reversed. She was like the mom during that time that I was sick because I got so sick. I couldn't walk. I couldn't roll over in bed. I couldn't do anything. And she was there for me. She's a physical therapist. She came and she helped move my hands and my feet and helped me really helped me recover and believed in me. And she made a a poster for me that was all of the things that I used to do. And she brought it into the ICU and the nurse asked her to do it. And she said, what good is this going to do? You know, my mom's in a coma. She can't see it. And he said to her, it's not for her. It's for us. It's for us to believe your mom can be what she was. It's for us to see how vital and how full of energy and how full of life she'd been. And when she's laying here on all these machines, it's hard for us to even imagine this shriveled up sick woman could have been that. So that poster, bless her heart, traveled with me from from hospital room to hospital room and inspired all of my caregivers to look at who I'd been and believe that I could be that again. So that belief really helped me recover my daughter and her love and her final real deep connection um, helped me heal and get better. And I'm back at life full out again. And I'm grateful to to be that. And I'm grateful for what connecting with her has brought me. I have three grown grandchildren and I'm really close to them. 
I've been close to them like I could never be close to my own daughter because I met her so late. I've been with them since they were born. So they spent a lot of time with me and I'm very, very close to them. So I didn't get to spend that time with her, but I've made up for it as best I could <clears throat> by spending time with her kids. And so that terrible day, that horrible rape, that scary time, that whole drama was the worst day of my life. And it has led to um, the love of my life, my daughter, her family, her husband, all the adventures that I had with those grandkids and will continue to have. <clears throat> I wouldn't have had that if I hadn't had that baby and I hadn't given that baby to someone else to care for when I couldn't. And there's repercussions and adoption is a tough thing. It's tough for everybody. It's tough for the birth mother. It, it's a joy for the adopted parents, but what's hard for them is those kids have a hard time connecting to them forever. And um, that's just a fact. It's a fact of DNA. It's a fact of how we love our children, partly because they look like us, they move like us, they talk like us, they act like this. But in an adopted situation, that connection is severed. So that is part of what the adoptees feel is, is that primal wound, the wound of not being with people that are like them connected in a, in a, in a, in a deep way, in a historical DNA way. So I learned a lot about it. And certainly though, you know, there's also beauty in adoption, right? And, and absolutely beautiful relationship and, and the gift of having, a, you know, a baby and, and all of that. I, I do want to interject because I know you know that, and I know you, 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 you say that as well, you know, and, but they're, everything you're saying is absolutely true. Um, it, it's a beautiful thing. And without adoption, there'd be these kids sitting in an orphanage with nobody. So although it's not a perfect solution, it's the best solution that we have given the circumstances that create children that aren't with their birth parents. So there is no other option, but being aware that it creates some extra challenges is important. Being, being honest with what, you know, what the disconnects are and what the connections are. Realize that so they can nurture that and be there for that and not take it personally because it's just, it's not about them. Right. Right. And there is so much more to Sharon's story, but I don't want to give it all away because I want you to um, join her Facebook community and get the book because there's a whole other part of it in terms of what happened to Ellie's birth father and the story there and, and his family. And there's so much more to discover about Sharon's life. And this wasn't the end of it. You think like, wow, this woman's been through the thick of it. If you, there's even more to her story and um, I can't wait for you to, to read it. We've been teasing this book with Sharon on her social media for, I don't know how long now. Wow. <laughs> We've been, a month because we've been working with other professionals to finally get it out there and have a set launch date so we can you guys need to be joining her facebook community following her on instagram and on facebook so you can be the first to know when that official launch date is we finally have the uh manuscript back in our hands and my team is um helping to to get it finalized uh and then it'll go through some other steps with uh her publisher uh publishing series and publishing uh process and when we have that release date if you're in her facebook community following her on Facebook, on Instagram, 
you will be the first to know how you can grab your copy. And for one day only, the Kindle version will be free. And you are going to help us tremendously. If you not only buy the Kindle version, but you also leave a review on her Amazon, um, on the book on Amazon, a positive five-star review, of course, and then share the link to the free Kindle on that day with all of your audiences to see. Help Sharon and this story become a number one best-selling author. We don't have a date yet, but as soon as we have it, again, you'll be the first to know if you follow Sharon. Sharon, anything else that you want to say before we head out here for today? No, I just want to say that it's been really helpful to be connected with Marta. As I as I told you the other day, I've been birthing this book for three years. And I feel like um, she's going to keep me from having a cesarean over it. Like it's going to actually get the final edits done and get out. And it's not just my story. It's 30 stories. And right. I, spent, I spent a long time gathering those stories, editing those stories, I, I took them all as interviews and then they had to be transcripted to the written word. But they're stories of other women that have risen from the depths of despair to uh, kind of tragedy to triumph. And they're really moving stories. And they're stories of losing their partners. They're stories of abuse. They're all the things that not only those women go through, but so many women in our world go through. And so the book is really to help the world, to help the world, especially the world of women, recognize they're not alone. And to tell your story is so powerful. And these women have told their story and they're telling it so that they can help you and other women that will be going through difficult times in life because they always happen. And there's such a diverse collection of stories. You'll find one that reminds you of something you've been through are going through or have someone close to you who's been through. So my purpose in, in the book is to spread the word that telling your story is powerful. Telling your story is not only personally healing, but it's healing for the world. It's like you throw the stone in the, in a calm lake and it, it creates those ripples out to the shore my goal with this book is to create those ripples of healing for people with stories, especially women that have lived and, and breathed some of these difficult things that you'll read about in the book. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I'm, I'm so honored to be able to help share and promote her story so that you guys can learn from it. Um, and we've been cheering every meeting, I think, in terms of the growth of your email list and the open rates being good and the growth of your Facebook community and the growth of your Facebook audience and um, Instagram as well and your presence there. And we've been working, uh, there's been some extensive work with my team to get her branding on point and uh, to get graphics on point, just how she likes them because each and every one of our clients is a VIP. So we treat them as such. And we're like, we're going to make your vision happen. And so we've been in this growth mode for the past couple months and her audience has grown exponentially. And then coming up, stay tuned after the book is released because she's got some other resources for you, especially if you're a woman over 50 um, who's feeling like, I don't, I like, I'm, I'm hiding my body. My life is all about other people. Um, I can't think of the last time I did something for the pure reason of that. It brought me joy and relaxation and happiness. Um, 
I don't wake up and I look forward to my day. I can't imagine taking a trip alone. Um, Sharon can guide you through all of that. Or maybe you've even got some deep rooted anger because of some relationships um, who that have gone awry and you felt a lot of pain and you just can't, you feel you find yourself consistently talking about this pain and these people who have hurt you. Sharon can help you help guide you past that. And we're going to be releasing some really wonderful resources to help you through that in the next coming months. So keep following her, keep watching the show. I'll keep bringing you guests that are as inspiring as Sharon, who um, will allow you to be more empowered to share your story, your vision, and go after your mission too. I mean, this is a woman who was in a coma uh, last summer. And now she's like, I think she said it a couple of times, where, you know, it's like, I, I couldn't, I can't die. You know, I haven't launched yet. Right. <laughs> so we're like, you can be like Sharon, right? <laughs> no matter what's happened in your life, you've heard the things she's been through. There are no, there, you could have excuses or you can have the success and the dreams that you desire. Um, the other thing I'll share with them, Marta, is that I'm 73. So you're never too old to do your thing, whatever your thing yeah. might be, the thing that you didn't get done, the thing that you've been putting off, the thing that you love. I'm launching a book at 73. I'm guiding women, coaching women and traveling around the world in a, having a lot of fun, hiking, loving life. And I want to share that and those resources so the world can keep those women out of bed. You know, I have some some people that work with me from, in, from Pakistan and I have a graphic artist there. And what he said to me yesterday is, I share your story because in Pakistan, when women reach 60, they go to bed and don't get up. Oh, I'm so glad that you can be such a, a source of inspiration worldwide. Well, you guys keep watching, keep listening. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you.